0: Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles The Siege of Jerusalem, 1099 Last week I described the events in Western Europe leading up to November 1095 when a historic sermon from Pope Urban II at the Council of Clermont triggered the First Crusade. This week I wish to bring up to date The story from the perspective of the Byzantine Empire and the Middle East, the region which is about to be invaded. In a previous podcast on the Battle of Yamuk of the year 636, I described the rise of a new superpower based on the religion of Islam. In the 7th century, the Arabs conquered Persia and invaded large parts of the Byzantine territory. Of particular relevance to today's podcast is their conquest of the Levant, that is the east Mediterranean coastline, up to the area of today's northern Syria, plus a small but highly strategic part of Asia Minor directly to the north of Syria called Cilicia. Cilicia was to become a key area during the time of the Crusades. It is a coastal area in the far northeast corner of the Mediterranean, around the Bay of Alexandretta, surrounded by mountain ranges, especially the Taurus Mountains. Probably the majority population there at the time of the Crusades were Armenians, many of whom had recently fled from persecution in their traditional homeland in the Caucasus. In the 760s, a new dynasty, the Abbasids, took over the Islamic world and moved their capital from Damascus to the newly founded city of Baghdad. As described in the podcast on the Battle of Chivatate, in the early 900s, a rival Shia caliphate, the Fatimids, rose to power in northern Africa. By the end of the century the Fatimids has expanded the area under their control to include the whole Mediterranean coastline from Morocco as far as Cilicia, with their capital in the recently founded city of Cairo. Other important places in the region conquered by the Fatimids and taken from their rivals, the Abbasids, were the cities of Aleppo and Antioch in the north of today's Syria and the island of Cyprus. 50 miles off the coast. While the Muslims administered the region, its population remained mostly Christian, although over time the percentage of Muslims increased to a mixture of immigration and conversion of the locals. The Byzantine Empire of Constantinople, despite losses to the Arabs in the 7th and 8th centuries, retained the rest of Asia Minor. Once as the eastern half of the Roman Empire, which had gone on to survive the 5th century, Byzantium had been the largest, most prosperous, and most powerful state in the known world. But it had been greatly weakened by the loss of territories, especially of Egypt and Syria in the southeast, and parts of the Balkans in the northwest. However, from the 860s, Byzantium had recovered sufficiently. To begin an attempt to regain its lost lands. Results were at first mixed, but over the decades its borders were pushed forward into Italy to the west and towards the Euphrates in the east. In the 960s and 970s the soldier emperors, Nicuferus Phocas and John Sumisces expanded the empire well into Syria, defeating the emirs of northwest Iraq and reconquering Cyprus. The Muslim Emirate of Aleppo and its neighbours became vassals of the empire in the east, and at one point, under John Sumiskes, the empire's armies even threatened to take Jerusalem. Instead, his successor, Basil II, wishing to concentrate his energies elsewhere, especially against the Bulgars, made truces with the Muslims. At this time, there existed two separate caliphates in the Middle East. Each represented the two sides in the great schism of Islam. The Caliph of Baghdad was Sunni, while in Egypt the Fatimid Caliph was Shia. Both considered the existence of the other as their greatest threat. To them, the Christian populations in the Levant were a relatively minor concern. Part of Basil's treaty with the Fatimids was the Muslims agreeing to allow access for Christians to make pilgrimage to the holy city of Jerusalem. The policy of the Fatimids towards Christians was generally one of tolerance, although it varied over time. For example, in 1004, Caliph Hakim started arresting and executing Christians in Jerusalem and converting churches to mosques but his immediate successors were much more tolerant. From the 1020s, large numbers of pilgrims started arriving at the Holy City, including the father of William the Conqueror, Robert Duke of Normandy, and the brother of King Harold Godwinson of England. The city received so many Western pilgrims that enterprising Italian merchants built hostels and monasteries there to house them. However. The whole region of the Levant was unstable, caught in the middle between three powerful rivals, Byzantine Constantinople, Abbasid Baghdad and Fatimid Cairo, and each of them were beset by their own court intrigues and struggled to control their outlying regions. The region had become in a way acculturated to the experience of conquest by external forces. In the 1050s, the Caliphs of Baghdad were overthrown by a confederacy of Turkic tribes who had swept down from the Eurasian steppes. It was a personal disaster for the old Caliphs' family and their court, and in the short term, highly disruptive to the Caliphate in Baghdad. However, in the long term, the new Turkish leaders breathed new life back into a previously decaying state, and gave fresh impetus to attacks on their neighbours. Their conversion to Sunni Islam as part of their gaining power in Baghdad was a pivotal moment in history. In 1073, the Turkish caliph Alp Aslan attacked Jerusalem to take it back from the Fatimids. Despite promises that as Muslims they would respect the city that was holy to them, when they met resistance, they resorted to brutal tactics. They attempted to starve the city into surrender, and when they finally broke in, it is reported that they killed 3,000 of the Muslims inside, even those who hid in the mosques. A Jewish poet wrote, They burned the heaped corn. Cut down the trees and trampled the vineyards, despoiled the graves and threw out the bones. End quote. It was not to be the last time that the citizens of Jerusalem suffered greatly by getting caught in the way of competing armies. The Turks also launched a series of invasions into Asia Minor against Byzantium. It is difficult to know how much of this was coordinated from Baghdad. Most likely, most attacks were organised by independent leaders, often relatives of the Caliph who sought new regions in which to establish personal control. The generous terms offered after the Battle of Manzikert by Alp Arslan to Byzantium suggest that the Caliph was not especially interested in gaining territory in Asia Minor. His priority was confronting the rival Fatimid Caliphate. In spite of this agreement, local Turkish forces continued to take over more towns in Asia Minor, taking advantage of infighting between the leading rival families of Constantinople. Three years after Manzikert, Byzantium requested military assistance from Rome, but Pope Gregory VII was not in a position to be able to help at the time, embroiled in a dispute with the Normans of Robert Guiscard and lacking the political capital to persuade Christian leaders to his cause. As it happened, the Turks met considerable resistance, although most of it from local leaders, instead of directly from Constantinople. For example, the area around Trebizond, on the south coast of the Black Sea, was secured by the local Byzantine commander, Theodore Gabras. He ruled the region for a time as if it was his own personal fiefdom, his exploits and bravery greatly admired by the Turks. A neighbouring region, Amasya, was held effectively by a Norman by the name of Roussel Balliol. Roussel had fought as a mercenary for the Byzantines and was present at the Battle of Manzikert. Now he was in the process of becoming effectively an independent local governor. And in the southeast of Asia Minor, the local Byzantine commander, an Armenian named Philaretos Blakamios, arrested control of many towns and territories. He built up a substantial power base around Cilicia, including the city of Edessa, in ten eighty three with the court of his army a force of 8,000 Normans. The actions of such men is judged depending on interpretation of the sources. On the one hand they can be seen to have committed treachery by usurpation, and to have seized land from central imperial control. On the other hand they were much loved by the local populations for defending them against the Turks at a time when Constantinople seemed unable to provide much help. The key question is what were the motivations of these local commanders in regards to their relation to the Emperor in Constantinople? The same question arose a few years later during the Crusades a few years later. From the beginning, were they merely in pursuit of gaining power for themselves or did they try to work for the good of the Empire as far as they were able. The answer is probably different for each individual. The historian Peter Frankopan suggests that the Turks posed less of a problem in the 1080s than is generally believed. He concedes that there were bands of raiders who were menacing soft targets, but these individuals could often be persuaded to fight for the Christians for the right amount of pay they were fighting for personal profit and prestige from whichever source seemed to yield the most. They were not on a holy mission, nor did they have any plans to take down the empire. This contradicts the impression given by our most important Byzantine source of the period, a biography of Emperor Alexios I by his daughter Anna Komnenna. Often this book, which is called the Alexiad, is often criticised as overly biased in Byzantium's favour. But it is no more so than the sources from the West of the time. Indeed, I think often less so. Alexius came to power in 1081 in a coup. Put in charge of the army to counter a Norman invasion from across the Adriatic, Alexius instead turned the army against Constantinople. Supporters inside the capital let his forces in, who swiftly took control of the city amidst heavy looting. He was crowned on Easter Day in the great church of San Sophia. To consolidate his position, the new emperor quickly appointed allies to key posts in the empire, including a new governor for the town of Diracium, the focus of the ongoing Norman attack. Alexius then personally led an army to confront the Normans. Despite an initial heavy defeat at Dyrrachium, over the next two years Alexius successfully led his troops in a series of operations which finally resulted in the withdrawal of the invading army back to Italy. In 1084, when the Normans launched a second invasion, it was Alexius again who set out in person to repel the attack and on this occasion with rather more success. After supplies and communications were cut, the Normans sustained heavy casualties from starvation and disease, and eventually surrendered. The next great threat to Constantinople was a nomadic steppe people called the Petronegs, who had invaded Thrace from beyond the Danube, and were starting to settle dangerously close to the capital. The Emperor's victory at the Battle of Leberunien was one of the most decisive and important of Byzantine history. The Pechenegs were annihilated and never posed a serious threat again to Byzantium. The two campaigns proved to be an important vindication for the young usurper Alexios. After decades of decline and near anarchy, the Empire at last seemed to have a strong leader at its helm. Alexius comes across as a sympathetic figure. His style of rule was not self-indulgent, in stark contrast to most of his immediate predecessors. He had soldiers' habits with simple tastes and disavowed life's luxuries. Also, unlike previous emperors, Alexius made himself available to discuss matters of concern with both his subjects and foreigners, often staying up late into the night to do so he was a devout man whose main relaxation came from studying the Bible. Soon after taking power he wore a hair shirt and slept on a cold floor as atonement for the behaviour of his troops during the coup. Yet the Emperor had no trouble taking on senior members of the clergy when required. Despite strong resistance from within the Eastern Church, Alexius personally oversaw the policy of reconciliation with the papacy. While Alexius enjoyed success in the West, the situation in the East was more complex. The Armenian chronicler Matthew of describes how Philovetos, having expanded his personal authority over much of Southeast Asia Minor, betrayed Constantinople in 1084 and even converted to Islam. For Alexius, this was catastrophic news. The prospect of Philaretus recognizing the authority of the Caliph in Baghdad was worrying enough. The threat of the loss of key towns such as Antioch and Edessa to the Muslims was a serious crisis. However, the year after Philaretus died, and his territories broke up. A close retainer of Alexius named Thoros was put in charge of Edessa. While Antioch was taken by a Turk named Suleiman. Peter Frankopan has the opinion that Suleiman operated as an ally of Alexius. This is very possible since Alexius was used to working with mercenaries of different races, I would explain why Suleiman was able to take over parts of Byzantine lands, such as Nicaea, without a great struggle. If this was the case, Suleiman's death in 1086 highlighted the dangers of the precedent of allowing Turks, even those friendly, to control any town or region, since his successors certainly felt no such loyalty to the Emperor. In this way Byzantium lost control of Nicaea to the Turks. The main danger to Byzantium was from a number of opportunistic Turks who now took advantage of the situation to establish private domains based around towns and fortresses previously controlled by Suleiman. The Caliph in Baghdad from 1072, Malik Shah, was concerned with Turks establishing separate power bases for themselves, so he made agreements with Alexius to try and work together to bring stability to the region and set a clear border between the two great powers. It is likely that the price for this cooperation was the giving up of control of Antioch, but to the Byzantines' favour it appears that some sort of stability had been re-established by the end of the 1080s. However, hopes for Constantinople to hold on to Asia Minor took several blows in the 1090s. Except for Turkish-held Nicaea, Byzantium still retained control of many prime parts of the eastern provinces, above all the crucial coastal regions and the islands of the Aegean. But while the Byzantine armies were kept busy by the Pechenegs, the city of Nicomedia, just 50 miles from Constantinople, came under attack. Alexius turned in desperation to a band of fifty Flemish pilgrims on the way back home from Jerusalem, led by Robert Count of Flanders. Alexius persuaded the pilgrim warriors to defend Nicomedia, but the Pecheneg threat became so great that he was later forced to divert them towards this even greater threat, and so allowed Nicomedia to fall into Turkish hands. Worse than that, at the same time, a Turkish military commander by the name of Chakas took control of several towns along the Aegean coast. From the Byzantine point of view, it was absolutely crucial to take back control of this region as it was critical to the empire's trade and communications network. With access to the Mediterranean and control of a fleet, Chakas was even able to take over some islands such as Chios and Lesbos and pose a threat to the city of Constantinople itself. Initial Byzantine efforts to confront this additional threat were unsuccessful, and the situation started looking desperate. And then in 1092, Malik Shah, Alexius's ally in Baghdad, was poisoned and died. The Caliph's death took away the hand of restraint from his followers, which he had employed in his lifetime. The ensuing Abbasid civil war was bad news for the authority of the administration in Baghdad, but it did not help Alexius either. The problems over the succession meant there was a power vacuum in Asia Minor. The Abbasid caliphate had in effect fragmented into small warring principalities, each ruled by separate Turkish overlords, usually members of the extended royal family. It made it difficult for Alexius to negotiate in agreements with the new local leaders, who were each making the most of their newfound freedom and the weakness of the Byzantines. Alexius sent troops to retake lost lands and did succeed in recapturing Nicomedia. Next, Chakas was defeated and the Aegean islands recovered. But two Turkish warlords in particular still posed a serious threat. Firstly, the successor and son in law of Chakas, who was named Kilij Arslan. And secondly, a charismatic leader, Danishmend, who had taken control of Central Asia Minor. Both figures would soon end up as adversaries for the Crusaders. The Emperor realized he desperately needed outside help. The Empire could, if necessary, afford to let slip borderlands in the Far East but the loss of control over large chunks of Central and Western Asia Minor, especially the Anatolian coast, became a threat to the Empire's very existence. This is the reason Alexius chose this moment to make an urgent request to Pope Urban for military assistance. Previously, Western mercenaries had proved themselves very effective warriors for Byzantium, so the decision was perfectly logical the emperor made a deliberate decision to appeal to his fellow Christians' sense of duties to recover lands lost to heathens. He was able to emphasise how the local Turkish warlords who had taken control of areas of the Levant were less interested in tolerance towards Christians than the Fatimids had been. As pilgrims returned from the Holy Land, they brought more and more news of Muslim aggression. In the past decades, the nobles of Western Europe had grown accustomed to being able to make the journey to Jerusalem. The fight to recover the Holy Land and allow once more devout Christians to make the sacred journey was seen as a worthy cause. Next week, I will describe the arrival of the Crusaders in the Holy Land and their first confrontation with the Muslims. Until then, thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles.